The Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institution, also known as SIMWI, is a nonprofit organization in Santa Barbara that serves to rescue and rehabilitate marine mammals as well as to educate the public while doing so. KCSB had the opportunity to visit the organization and work hands-on in preparing the feed for the sea lions and northern elephant seals, as well as learn about the staff, volunteers, and founders. You'll hear from Ruth Dover, director of the organization, and stranding operations and animal care manager, Jen Levine, as we follow their daily routine in preparing and feeding the marine mammal rescues. Internal News Director Ashley Rush and I started off by helping to prepare the fish, followed by learning how to pill the fish to feed the sea lions their medication. Here is Jen Levine walking us through that process. So, you know, believe it or not, uh, there is a a nice fish for pilling and there's a not-so-nice fish for pilling. So I try to always pre-select for our volunteers. Um, So back to this, each of our patients is an individual. They have their own treatment and medication plan. Each patient has their own card. So we number our patients. We don't name them because they are wild and they're not our pets. It's really important to remember that because they're super cute and they're really gregarious. And um, so we have to remember they're wild, treat them like they're wild. We try not to talk to them very much. We try to make sure that we do everything we can so that when they're released, they have a successful reintroduction into the wild. Um, These four patients are our northern elephant seal pups. This is their patient number, the medications they're getting, the amount of fish they're getting, how much they weighed when they came in, their admit date, their sex, the mark on their head. You'll see those when we go meet our patients. Um, Their tag number, so that's a flipper tag that goes back to the wild with them. And then for our purposes right now, the type of fish they're eating, the total base, as well as how they're taking their medfish. So H is in green, and that is for herring. And Capelin is in red, and well, that's for Capelin. C is for Capelin, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. So I'm gonna let you guys try a herring pill first, peeling a herring first, and then you'll do a Capelin, because the Capelin's a little more difficult. Um, So we'll start with our elephant seals. Um, I'll take 41, and that's getting a herring. So what I like to do is I dump my pills out, just because it's easier than reaching in the cup. You want to put your pill, your pill cup back in the same order that it was and stand it up like that with the number facing out. And then you're just going to crank that fish head back like this. I start with my smallest pills and sort of nest them and start pushing them back. And then I use the rest of the pills to shove and shove. And you can get quite a few pills into a herring. If you feel like your herring is going to burst, you can stop and flip it over. It might work on the other side, or you might need a second fish. As Ashley and I pill the fish, Jen Levine talks a little more about what's in these medications that they're feeding the sea lions and elephant seals and what they are for. Um, But they get an antibiotic. Um, They usually get some steroids initially. They'll get a acid reducer for their stomach, um, both because a lot of them have GI ulcers from stress or from parasites. Mm. Um, They get a marine multivitamin, a probiotic because they're on an antibiotic. They get salt supplements because they need salt for the health of their kidneys and the health of their eyes. Um, They also will get a GI coating medication and uh, sometimes a medication that helps the blood clot better, which also helps with those GI ulcers that we see. 
Um, so those all get tapered off as they wind down in rehab and are just gaining some weight. And by the time that they leave, the only things that they are taking are their vitamins and minerals. KCSB News and Public Affairs Director Lisa Osborne asks Ruth and Jen who their typical volunteers are. A wide mix. Um, young college students um, like you guys. Um, and then we have like some veterinary students um, that have come and spend time like um, uh, like Rachel's doing with us. We have, um, as you listen to the team meeting, we have a couple of nurses on our team. It's our first uh, police officers just joined our team. We have a retired um, firefighter. We have some moms, some grandmas. We have people who are studying marine biology or environmental sciences. We get a lot of volunteers. Um, we have photographer, education, background. It's, it's a huge mix because... Two. Yeah. I mean, just totally... Oh, and a yeah. CFO, a retired CFO. Yeah. So really anybody. people from the military background, um, young professionals. We have a mechanical engineer that just joined our team um, who actually works for the Navy. So it, it can really be anybody. You don't have to come to our team with any experience. We train you on the job. What's most important is that you are engaged, you're, you're a good communicator, that you want to learn and work hard. And if you come to the table with all of that, we invest in you. Uh, a minimum of one full day each week. It's, it's not an easy job, um, and it's very physical labor. You'll see our volunteers, they're on their hands and knees scrubbing, and they're putting their back into it. They're not using cleaning products to, um, to clean the pens. More, it's more of the elbow grease and some cleaning products. It's also emotionally challenging. You're going to be dealing with sick animals, and they're not all going to make it. You're going to have, you're working with people that you may have never worked with before, and those interpersonal dynamics and some just difficult medical situations and you're going to be learning on the job um, while you're volunteering. So it's really uh, one day a week is the biggest thing. Um, if you want to volunteer more than that, we'll take you too. All of the volunteers and staff at Simwe are very hardworking and dedicated to their time at the organization. Ruth, as the director of the organization, overlooks everything, so we asked her what her day normally looks like as a director at Simwe. So my position is the director of the organization, and the way I kind of describe it is that I, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You pull back the curtain, and that's me. I've got my hands in kind of everything. I wish I had two assistants, but I don't. So a lot of it is I'm really thankful that we've got such strong, strong volunteers. So it varies. It really, I can have a best laid plan. Like today, I wanted to be here. I planned to leave early. I was gonna be at the gate waiting for you for 15 minutes in advance. I was like, oh, I can get a little bit of whatever I missed in the car ride. I can catch up on my texts. And then that didn't happen. So it's probably waking up a little earlier before everybody else wakes up so I can get some work done um, or staying up late afterwards so that I can get some office time in. But the day is a free-for-all. You just never know how things are going to happen. And we have somebody who manages the hotline, and she's our hotline response coordinator, and she dispatches. But she's also only one person, so I jump in and I help her. And then we've got volunteers in the field that are responding to the animals, and they are assessing the animal visually and then they're making a recommendation as to whether or not the animal should be rescued 
if it should be put under observation or maybe they're new and they need a second opinion. So somebody has to approve all of that and that falls on my shoulders. So I'm either texting with the individual or on the phone with them. Today, too much was going on and I passed it off to my husband as the director and chief veterinarian. And so he took over with one of the situations so that I can focus on another one. Um, and then it's, uh, yeah, just it's, sometimes the shift needs assistance, um, but usually Jen is here. And if she's not here, she manages the shift leads and the shifts remotely, so via text or phone call. So the technology is great and people can send like videos of the animals and how they're doing or this animal seeming to, maybe it's having a petite mal seizure and Jen will say, great, can you photograph that or video it so I can take a look and see what's going on or the wound and she can help modify the feeding or the treatment planned for that particular animal. So it's really a best laid plan. Um, there's always a strategy and a plan for the day, but going with the flow and sometimes just prioritizing to the top things at the moment because we're dealing with first response and critical situations and health. Now we move on as Ruth guides us towards the sea lions and elephant seals to get ready to watch them feed. As we got to meet the sea lions, Laura, a pre-med student and volunteer shift lead, tells us about the reasons why these sea lions were rescued. So each has their own reason for being rescued. It can be medical, you know, something really obvious like a shark bite, abscess, broken flipper, things like that. Other times it's because they're really lethargic and thin, so emancipated. Most of the time when an animal is beached, they're kind of taking a break from being in the water, they're tired or resting, but if they're there for too long, for like a day, 72 hours, whatever, um, then you know that it's not healthy. Because these animals are mainly meant for the water, you know? So that's what the hotline response is for us. They monitor the animals and determine whether they should be picked up or if it's just, you know, taking a break, things like that, so. In learning more about the sea lions and northern elephant seals, Ashley asked Jen if all of the rescues are young animals. Correct. So the okay. elephant seals were born in December and January, it, so okay. they're about six months old. Mm -hmm. And then the California sea lions, they uh, the official California sea lion birthday is June 15th. So every year on June 15th, we have a little birthday party for them. Mm. So all of these animals are one year old, just as of a week ago, except for that big girl in there. She's probably three to four years old. So she's what we call a sub and for the most part, are the animals always on the younger side, or is she one of the oldest ones that you've had here? Um, most of our animals that we rescue are on the younger side. We do rescue sub-adults and adults, but it's much less frequent. Uh, they seem to just do better in the wild. They've had a long time to learn how to fish and forage. They know the spots. They can dive deeper. They can swim further offshore. So they just are a little better equipped to have a longer-term survivability. Um, pup mortality in general in the wild for most species of animals is fairly high. Um, so, you know, we're able to help the ones that make it to our shores. Um, but I know that out on the islands, um, it's, you know, not a perfect world, I guess, is the best way I can say it. Jen made it clear that it was important for these animals to return to the wild after they rehabilitate, previously mentioning how the rescues are not given names and are not talked to. Following this idea, I asked Jen if there has ever been an incident where a rescue becomes too adapted to humans and it becomes difficult for them to return to the wild. Um, from a human perspective, no. We don't ever get upset or sad that they're being released. It's always a bittersweet thing where I might really like an animal, but like the 
ideal and ultimate goal is a second chance at life in the wild for these animals. So being able to release them is like the everything. Um, for the animals, 99.9% .9 of the time, they go back to the wild, they do great. Um, we have had a couple of animals over our 16 years in business that have needed to go to a permanent home because they are too acclimated to people, but typically that's an animal that was rehabilitated by our or another organization and has stranded multiple times and has proven that they just are not adept at life in the wild. And that's why it's so nice that zoos and aquariums exist because the other option would be to euthanize an animal that couldn't live on its own in the wild. So the fact that they can take that animal and give them a life full of veterinary care and free fish for their entire life um, and train them and stimulate them and give them enrichment is actually a really, really wonderful thing. And the other cool part is that they make a cool conservation story. So those animals that do have to go to a permanent home, they are ambassadors for the wild sea lions and seals. The sea lions and elephant seals are all well fed, and as we are getting to leave, Ruth makes a comment about the sea lions falling into food comas. So as you can see, these patients in this pen have now, they've each finished their individual base, and they look like they're all in their food coma, which is just like humans after a huge meal, like after a holiday Thanksgiving or eating a whole pizza or just that extra slice. We go into that food coma, all your blood's rushing to your stomach to help digest, and that's what they're exhibiting right now. So they're in like a half in and out of sleep. Um, if I wasn't talking, maybe they'd be fully asleep. Um, and a natural thing for the, the, the sea lions is they'll rest their head, kind of just leaning back into that pose. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched your dad fall asleep on the couch. Yeah. It's kind of like, same kind of thing, except for sea lions can put their head further back. And then they kind of jerk forward and snap out of it a little bit. But it's a natural resting position and sleeping position. Early in June, a baby sea lion was born on the Santa Barbara Harbor. KCSB News and Public Affairs Director Lisa Osborne asked Ruth about what Simwi's involvement was like in helping the baby sea lion. Really challenging situation, not only for the mother and the pup, just from a human manage like the the beachgoers, bystanders managing that activity. Um, and we had volunteers watching over the animal from sunrise to after sunset each day that the animals the animals were on the launch ramp. That's not where the animal should have given birth. They are breeding rookeries basically on each of the Channel Islands um, in the Santa Barbara Channel. And so that animal should have gone to Santa Rosa, San Nicolas, and um, Santa Cruz and given birth there. So it is unusual for a California sea lion to give birth on the mainland like that. We think she was on the way and then Mother Nature um, took over and she was ready to deliver. So we um, ended up intervening um, but we were very careful we wanted to make sure that we waited to intervene until that pup had been nursing and a bond had been formed with its mother because the most important part of an animal's life is the bonding with its mother and getting the colostrum so those first few days of nursing are the most critical when we felt that they had established a strong like a, a consistent bond and realizing that the harbor was going to get more and more populated and busier and noisier, we decided to intervene on Friday morning and relocate them to give them the best chance 
at it being in the wild and living their life. As we finished up our visit at the Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institution, we asked Ruth about the missions and goals of the organization. So Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institute, also known as SIMWI, we go by our acronym because our name is huge, right? But we have a big vision, just like Jen's title is the Stranding Operations and Animal Care Manager because we can give her lots of responsibilities. Uh, so our mission is that we're dedicated to positively impacting conservation through marine mammal rescue, rehabilitation, education, and research to um, and in our efforts to promote, ocean uh, to, motion, to, to promote ocean and human health, the end part of it. <laughs> so we are, the main core of what we do is the rescue and rehabilitation efforts, but it's much more than that. That's what maybe the public sees us doing. We also are engaged with research, with other researchers, with um, universities. We've been involved with um, uh, antibiotic resistance studies, heavy metal studies, with um, live whale, doing live whale biopsies in our channel. Um, and we also do a lot of education. Definitely with COVID, that's changed things. We're not going into classrooms, uh, or we hadn't been. But also, being an all-volunteer organization, we always don't have the skill set. Uh, the person who is, a, is good at teaching, or maybe a retired teacher, or somebody who's working on their teaching credentials. And so, with COVID, it gave us an opportunity to be more introspective. And we actually are creating lesson plans for kindergarten through fifth grade. Um, that will um, be complete lesson plans aligned with states and science standards and uh, they'll all have learning activities to go with them and we're going to uh, establish an educational portal that they'll be warehoused on so anybody can access them or people can contact us and we'll be able to more easily train volunteers to go into classrooms and to educate um, and we're going to translate everything into Spanish. So we've got, and um, we recently were awarded a Coastal Resource Enhancement Fund grant uh, that is going to pay for video introductions for each of the lesson plans. So we're super excited because we are not um, professional educators, but we've got a team of some core volunteers that are working on the project. So we'll launch with the um, next year's school cycle. As the organization promotes education on marine life and conservation, I asked how bystanders can also play a role along with the organization if they were to come upon a marine animal in distress. The first thing is to step back and to give that wild animal space and to call our hotline and to give us a, uh, the opportunity to come and to evaluate the animal so we can determine if it needs our help or if the best thing to do is to just leave that animal because the beach, we kind of forget, is a natural habitat for these marine mammals, not just the ocean. Um, and to have people call our hotline to report it, uh, and our hotline is 805-567-1505. Um, and many people don't realize that marine mammals are federally protected species, so it's actually illegal for anyone just to go up to the animal and to try to rescue it or to pour water on it, to harass it, to try to feed it, to drag it back into the ocean. Um, all of those actions are actually illegal and it could result in fines of up to, uh, what is it, 11000 dollars for a year of imprisonment. So, but which is even, kind of crazy. <laughs> well, see, but even more importantly, doing those actions may impact the survival of that animal. So an animal that has beached itself, 
has may have beached itself for a reason it, it may be totally fine but it may not and if you drag it back into the water that could make a sick animal even worse off so we really encourage people to be hands off to take a photo if the animal looks at you or tries to move away from you you're way too close uh, the rule is actually 50 feet but 50 feet is a school bus so on some of the beaches it's hard to get 50 feet away from an animal but we do ask that people you know if that animal's reacting to your presence that you take even more space back from that animal because you're bothering it at that point. We then got to learn how Ruth and her husband Sam founded the organization. Uh, my husband and I actually founded the nonprofit organization. Um, this was my husband's dream to do something that was bigger than himself. He's a veterinarian and uh, has been practicing marine mammal medicine for about 32 years. Uh, and he has always uh, been uh, connected to the ocean and the conservation efforts and realizing that it's not just about saving the individual ones, it's how do you impact, how do we learn from these animals and how do we make the ocean healthier for them and protect these species because everything that's happening in the ocean really is gonna happen and affect us as humans. Everything is that happens on land also affects uh, the oceans. So he, um, we saw the property um, in 2002 from the side of the highway, um, realized what uh, we could build out here. In 2003, we got our nonprofit status. In 2004, we got a lease on the property and worked with um, National Marine Fisheries, um, who's the authorizing organization for stranding agreements to get our permit um, and opened our doors in January or June of 2006. And we initially just served Ventura County. And then around the time of the Refugio oil spill in 2015, we were asked by National Marine Fisheries to start doing the rescue and rehabilitation for marine mammals in Santa Barbara County. We serve 155 miles of coastline. Uh, within those two counties, 106 beaches, and they have four harbors within the jurisdiction as well. Simwe is a nonprofit organization, and with all of the hard work that everyone puts in, we ask Ruth if there are any difficulties that they face while running the organization. Financing our operations is the biggest um, challenge that we have as a nonprofit. Santa Barbara has the highest number of nonprofits per capita in the county, uh, within Santa Barbara County. Um, and, uh, sorry, that did not come out right. Yes. Santa Barbara County has the highest number of nonprofits per capita in the nation. So there's a lot of competition and very worthwhile and amazing causes. Um, we're the only ones who get who have the permit to do the work that we do. So we're not, I mean, there's not competition directly for the work that we do, but for the local donors. And especially with COVID, it's become more challenging. I mean, people are having a hard time even surviving on their own. They're not going to have the additional funds to donate to so financial support is the biggest thing. Simwi is an incredible organization that has been working hard since their inception, and they've rescued and treated 1,756 marine mammals, collected scientific data on 1,664 dead stranded marine mammals, and managed 28,576 calls to their rescue hotline under their all-volunteer organization. 
With KCSB wrapping up their visit to the Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institute, we asked Ruth and Jen how listeners can support their organization. I think that if anybody has an additional uh, the means to make a financial contribution, we'll always take those, but also your listeners are local. Um, there are students that are in the area, and if they're interested and want to volunteer, they should go to our website under Ways to Help. There's information about volunteering, as of course making a donation as well. Um, but there's a vol and there's a volunteer application online. The most important thing for anybody who's interested in volunteering is it's a long-term volunteer commitment that we're looking for, um, and one day a week. And what's our website? Our website is www.cimwi.org. Thank you to the Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institute for allowing KCSB News to see the ins and outs of their organization. Make sure to check out their website at cimwi.org and to call their listed hotline if you ever find an injured or sick marine mammal. For KCSB News, I'm Jennifer Yoshikoshi.